I never knew that it was going to be this difficult yet so fun. We're just putting their mental health and their well-being first because if they don't have the right well-being, if they don't have the right mental health support, they're going to fail. Should school start earlier in life? Should school start later in life? You know, there are some countries where children don't start school until they're seven. I think it will come to a day where we will have uh, equalised gender workforce. I can't go any further without um, sort of pointing out how pleased I am that my hair and top match your jumper, your top, very, very perfectly. <laughs> and we look like we've properly coordinated our outfits today. We've both got our EY tag team badge handy. We've both, you know, in the in the same colour yellow. And then my hair is the same colour as Yes Stripe. I think that's some creative dressing we've managed apart really from anything is. else. I think we telepathically knew. <laughs> Now, I've spoken to you before for the podcast, so some people might know who you are um, if they've listened to that previous episode. But just in case they don't, could you tell us who you are and why you're here? Um, So I'm Jake Forecast and I am a last year primary edge student at Canterbury Christchurch University, which I thought I'd never say this time this, this year. Um, and I am an early years educator as well, and you may know me being on Twitter um, as to promoting males in the early years workforce. Brilliant, thanks. Um, and how exciting is it that you're in your last year? Oh, it's absolutely crazy. I mean, it was, it was only what, like a year and a half ago that I spoke to you, and things were still ever changing then, and now it's I'm on my dissertation now, which is crazy. What's your dissertation on? Um, I'm going to be doing it on reading for pleasure. um, And I might be looking into uh, gender and book genres and how they might differ to each other um, in a localised primary school, which uh, sounds very interesting. It does sound really interesting, and and you should have loads of background knowledge to help you with that from all of those book reviews that you've, you've done. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've definitely seen a shift, I mean, especially on the lockdown as well, um, where, because I'm in school at the moment, and uh, the children uh, have read-writing books, and every time they finish a book, I go, oh, um, have you enjoyed that book? And most of them would go, no. And it's like, it might be a skull book, and they might not like that at all, or it might be a, um, a science book, and sometimes they do enjoy that. Um, but it's very strange to see the differences between the two uh, in terms of gender. So it'll be very good to look at and see the different points of view. Yeah, do you think that those differences are in the enjoyment or in the messaging, or do you think, or in the genres? Like, or, or do you think that some of that is in the reporting of how they feel about that. So maybe, for example, girls don't feel comfortable saying they enjoyed something in that genre because it's not the done thing for girls to admit to. Or boys, you know, like not enjoying a book that was all about playing with something that might be not cool for boys to play with. Does does that make sense? Um, yeah, it does make sense. Um, I suppose that I haven't really thought about that. And I tell you what, that would be really interesting to find out because 
I know a couple of children in my class that would like skulls or whatever, and maybe they might be too shy to actually say, well, yeah, I, I did enjoy that book, but I don't really want to say it in front of my friends because they kind of like the girly girl stuff, and I don't. So you said that you're still in school at the minute. Does that mean that you're working with key worker children? I am, and uh, I must admit it's far from what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> um, I never knew that it was going to be this difficult, yet so fun. Um, and obviously it's an ever-changing uh, thing at the moment, but it's it's really interesting to see the differences, because at the moment, um, obviously they're coming in different days, but out of the 22 children I've got, 19 have got SEND, um, which is uh, a challenge. <laughs> um, but you know me, Dawn, I like a challenge. So it's, it's really interesting to see on a day-to-day basis. And is it nice working with a slightly smaller class size because obviously the children who aren't either key worker children or, people, or children with additional needs aren't in school, so you can spend a bit more time with those children that are there. Yeah, and uh, I feel like I've built more of a bond with the children as well, considering they're quite a small class. Because there's some days where I'll just have like nine children. And the fact that I have nine children, I'll be able to help them out easily. And then the next day I'd have 18. Um, So it's just trying to get that balance as well. And do you think that the children that you have got, that, that there are additional things they need or additional challenges because of the world circumstances has that changed the the way that a classroom operates and the way that those children come into school on a morning some of them yes some of them no I mean some of them you can clearly see that the pandemic has definitely impacted their mental health and the school are doing really well in terms of basically squashing those and trying to get on the right side of learning because if you haven't got the right well-being support, um, they just won't be able to learn at all. Um, I mean, I know um, some children in particular, um, they used to take praise really well, and now they struggle with praise because they haven't had, like, obviously with home learning, um, they've just been a- unable to adapt as such. And I do really feel for some uh, some of the children who find routines hard um i know a lot of children in particular i know sometimes we do switch up the timetable a little bit um either because of staffing or it's because of um like the amount of children that are in or whatever and they struggle they struggle and we try to basically minimize the amount of changes that we have but for the children it's really hard to process like the fact that like, so I am in a uh, two-form entry, but my year two class is a three-form. Um, you've got the children that have not been in their normal class. You've got children with their friends not being in school. You've got, they've like, not got their usual equipment. They haven't got their usual teacher. There's TAs coming in left, right and centre. And then throwing me in the mix. <laughs> it's not a not very good balance. Um, and I think it's only just now they've started to recognise and get into the routines and some of them are still struggling more than others um, just because they're only in like a couple of days rather than a full week. Um, But yeah, it's definitely taking a toll on their mental health and 
our school's quite lucky. We've actually got a mental health uh, team on board um, because they're part of an academy trust and we've actually got the director of the mental health and wellbeing in our school. Um, and he's trying his best so hard to actually work with parents, work with teachers, to try and support the children. I mean, we've had training on positive reinforcement. We've had uh, lots and lots of training um, in terms of supporting children during lockdown and like basically seeing how they're doing. And it's quite hard actually because we some of the children do a Zoom um, for children at home, which is quite nice because they get to meet up with them. But you can clearly tell that, like, oh, I want, I, want a, I want a friend to come here. I want a friend to be in school. And that's really hard because seeing that and seeing the impact it's going to have, it's not just going to be the impact of lockdown. It's going to be everlasting in a way. Like, they're so behind. And I completely agree with somebody on Twitter said that, they're obviously all the children are behind they're going to start to do a covid catch-up program and they said well if all the children are behind then who's in front yeah like who are that, that that's the question that i've got i keep seeing in the in the media that children are so far behind where they need to be and education is it, everything's behind like every everyone's really far behind and and it's it's and the, the, the other side of that, you know, talking to practitioners and seeing practitioners sort of answering those news articles online with, I suppose, reinforcing that school isn't all about academic attainment and that one of the things that children are behind with is their social skills and their ability to to, to regulate their emotions and to, to, to co-regulate with other people and to, to know what's appropriate and when and to, to sort of navigate their own feelings and that that stuff is more important than the academic stuff but yeah the question I've had through sort of watching those conversations as an interested non-education sort of person in the background um is like who are the behind because it it's not even as if this pandemic has only affected the UK. It's a worldwide pandemic and everyone is struggling. So I, I don't entirely understand who the children are behind. Yeah, for me, I think what the education secretary or whatever they're trying to say is basically the children are behind in terms of the national curriculum. Yeah, the usual learning milestones. So, and... I think there's just that expectation that they've got to reach that level. And obviously there's some children that may not reach that level. They've just reached it or they're exceeding it. And I think being in school, I can definitely see the impact because I'm in a year two class at the moment. And I've got children that are still doing uh, phonics, uh, quite a large group actually that are doing phonics. Uh, we're still doing ph the phonics screening tech checks. And it's definitely taking a toll on their academic abilities. But again, we're, we're just putting their mental health and their well-being first. Because, again, if they don't have the right well-being, if they don't have the right mental health support, they're, they're going to fail. And we don't want to fail the children. It is that constant conversation of should school start earlier in life? Should school start later in life? You know, there are some countries where children don't start school until they're seven. Like, you, you know, 
Uh, yeah, and that whole idea that actually starting school later gives children more ability to develop those personal skills and those social skills and those sort of exploratory things and and enjoying sort of the way that home works and, and then moving into that like academic education works with that firm bed of skills. Do you think that it's an opportunity to to focus on those other skills and to, to help younger children to develop on that personal level and with their family and to do some more exploration of the world um, to inform that other development later on? Mm, I think definitely. I think now in an ever-changing world, I think we're going to have to because um, children need that exploration. And it's, it's not even from like the early years foundation stage. They need it throughout their whole life because um, <clears throat> in year six, all it's driven to then is sats, sats, sats. And I've seen that. And like, when I was in a year six class before, I said, like, like what, why are we learning? Why are we learning? And I was like, oh, because we're learning for the sats. And it's quite sad to actually see that it's been driven so much into the children that you've got to reach that attainment goal that they've kind of forgotten the exploration, the critical thinking, the... Uh, just just exploring and just finding the world around. I don't think we have enough time for that. And I find that ridiculous because there's always time. Yeah, and I think we see that manifest in grown-ups, don't we, where like, you become really driven by the specific outcome of the thing. And actually, you might have been you might have gotten a better outcome if you'd spent more time doing the exploration at the beginning and the planning and having a bit of a read around something and a figure it out. I even thought about this in my early years when we were talking about play and exploration, is that the children, I feel that if you go to reception, you have that play-based learning, you have that exploration. Year one and year two, you start to transition, so you kind of have less time, but it's still needed. And it's... It's something that should be embedded in the curriculum anyway, that exploration. And even, it even says that in the national curriculum about like, thinking critically. and It says it in multiple subjects that you have to have the creativity, the exploration. So the EYFS still feeds in, but it's met in a learning outcome. It's met in a success criteria. It isn't met in a circumstance where they're just going out and exploring their learning. And I think everything's like, you have to do it this way. And I think that's the best thing about certain subjects, like DT, for example. Like, I taught a lesson on DT. I was teaching them something. They weren't getting it in their heads. It was going right over their heads. And all they wanted to do was make stuff. They wanted to make 3D they were making 3D flying machines, and that's all they wanted to do. So I just went, right, okay, grab three, three things that you would like and go to your table. And I just let them do what they want. One of the things I really struggled with in my 20s was not being good at things. So because I was, you know, like an academic kid, and actually that idea of setting a learning outcome and going for that learning outcome and achieving that worked really well for me in a school setting and I was that kid you know like my hand was always in the air always doing the things but because that was reinforced through education what that meant was when I was a grown-up and I was looking at stuff I wouldn't just pick it up and have a try or a play or see if I could do something because 
Noir would need to learn how to do that and then be able to do it. So things like DIY and having a bit of a play in the garden and like planting and figuring stuff out or when I started to get involved in working down at the farm as a volunteer, I wouldn't, it took us ages to figure out that it's okay, even as a grown-up, just to give it a go and just to have a play and just to see what happens and to figure it out as you go along. And that's something that's been really beneficial in my 30s is figuring out that you can just give it a go. Um, But I lost that through, really through my primary education and through that, like, very iterated way of doing stuff. Everything's very rigid, isn't it? It's, you have to do this by a certain time. If you don't meet it, you're you're in trouble. And we don't get to explore that. I mean, science, the children love science. They love exploring. Like... If you had, like, say, for your example, you're going to plant stuff or whatever, that's science, but that could be brought into so much more. And I think just having that focus, if a child one day said, I've been reading about dinosaur eggs, make your whole theme about dinosaur eggs and get them involved, get them actively engaged. I mean, or even if it's like a real life thing, it's like, so for example, just say, um, I've been planting sunflowers, for example. You can learn about sunflowers. You can incorporate pretty much every single subject about it. But we don't do that. And it's it's such a shame because we could learn them real good life skills um, for their journey ahead in life. And I think you can clearly see, like, within, like, elderly or some adulthood, you can clearly tell that they've had that education where they've had that opportunity to explore. And now you can clearly see further down the generation that it's been driven into our heads, that we have to meet the expectation. Your creativity is going away. And that's why I love Ken Robinson. I absolutely adore him. Um, when he said that like, creativity should have the same importance as literacy. And it does, and it should. And we should have a very revolutionised education to enforce that. And it's it's crazy that we don't. And because I know like the Welsh curriculum, for example, they've only just uh, announced a 2020 curriculum, and it focused a lot on well-being. It focused a lot on creativity. It, everything was there, but why can't we do it? <laughs> why can't we be Wales? <laughs> um, but um, it's really sad and. I even said in my lesson, when they all done it, I mean, I had a child who uh, is very dependent on adults. He has like learning difficulties, which means that he'll just, he won't focus on anything. Um, and the teacher, and he just said to the teacher, I just want to do it by myself. Okay, do it by yourself. And I must admit, he made one of the best rockets we have ever seen. <laughs> and he didn't have any support or nothing. And... I even said in my lesson, I said, you all say you do not have creativity. Like I even gave some examples to the children who said, oh, I can't do this, or I don't know how to do this. And I, I just picked them up and I was just going, well, this goes to show that you do, and we don't do it enough. And they agreed. They said, we don't, we don't do it enough. And we're going to try and enforce that um, and try to change our curriculum up a little bit. 
Yeah, I mean, Dan Howard, who um, is the gent who looks after all of the employability stuff at NCFE and all of that sort of adult learning um, around employability and soft skills and the stuff that you need to actually succeed in the world. Um, he recently posted um, about creativity and about the lack of focus on creativity, because I think one of the things that I hadn't necessarily married up in my head, because you know, I did a drama degree, I'm a a stereotypically creative person. I'm a, a journalist, I do writing things, obviously we record podcasts, I draw, I, I do art. And I'd never considered the creative stuff, the creative thinking, the creative way that that all feeds into my day job and the way that I solve problems and the way that I think about things. And actually, for such a long time, I beat myself up for not making time to do art and to not be creative. But actually, creativity is such an important part of problem solving and being able to visualise what different solutions might look like. Or, you know, in a business world and with all of these academic skills that we hear about all of the time, you can't apply any of those academic skills if you can't think creatively. Cash Alumni, the fastest growing network of current and future professionals in care, health and education. You can join us for free at cashalumni.org.uk and get access to articles from subject specialists and experts, e-learning to a discount and benefits scheme and lots of support with career development and your future growth. Do you think that it's, it's been helpful being a student teacher through this really weird period? Because although I know that it must actually be a ridiculous amount of work for you because obviously student teachers as well as being in the classroom as well as doing the lesson planning as well as doing all of that um sort of support and that 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 stuff that scaffolds that actual education bit and the pastoral stuff and, and everything else that teachers do you're also doing the academic stuff to talk about what you're doing and having to do all of that sort of active reflective practice and writing a dissertation and all of that extra stuff but do you think it's been beneficial having that sort of layer of support and that layer of sort of having to talk about what you're doing and what stuff you're putting in place because you've also got that scaffolding around you with the education system? Yeah, I mean, having that creativity there um, and being able to go into a school and you go, right, OK, we're going to do division today um, or we're going to do division next week. Uh, what do you want to plan? And... I think just having that freedom is just amazing because um, I think it's going to be the only chance where you'll be able to constantly be observed and explore those skills. And I think that I think that's the one thing about doing primary education, doing an early years teaching degree, is that you is is a once in a lifetime opportunity to just show your skills and just you know, just pour the creativity out of you. I mean, I think one time, I'm going to give you, give you an example. We were supposed to go to the beach um, in Herne Bay, and we, obviously we couldn't due to COVID and our risk assessments. And I just said, well, why don't you bring the beach to, that, to us? And so I, I, I got stones, I got sand, I got water, and like, we had a sensory activity, and... They, they absolutely loved it, and it's it's something that you can explore, and it's something that you learn every day as well, and the children surprise you in terms of their creativity, and you go, oh, I never really thought of that, 
and I'm going to go away and I'm going to reflect on that and I'm going to bring it back because that's a whole new learning experience in itself. And I think having having a lot of SEND children as well, their minds think completely differently. And to work around that and to explore, and kind of explore their brain in a way, it's it's really fascinating. It's a challenge, but it's really fascinating. And to be able to go, right, okay, well, how are we going to do it? We can do it in two different ways, or we can explore it in different ways. And I think schools really benefit from that. I think having a new breath of fresh air in a way. And I know my school, they have a lot of student teachers. Um, and I think just seeing the different types of teaching that they do, and and that feeds into the academic stuff, right, in terms of um, and like written assignments. So I know that I was doing an RE assignment, and uh, I, I fed it back to the school, and quite recently I've done a, a staff development activities, and the school actually wanted that to feed back to their own school. Um, so, yeah, definitely I think student teachers are, are the saviour of um, at the moment in terms of the pandemic. It's very, very tricky. And what you said there was actually really interesting to me because I know a lot of people find observation or being observed really, really stressful. Um, and that idea of being judged almost on what they're doing in a classroom, because obviously it's someone coming in who doesn't necessarily know your children, doesn't necessarily know what their challenges are or what it is that you're, you're navigating and making judgments about how well you're teaching. And I know that there are teachers or, or anyone really, like I hated being, I hated my driving test because someone was watching what I was doing and deciding if it was good enough. Um, I know lots of people find that really stressful. But you just said that having that constant observation makes you feel freer to explore and to experiment and to, to, to teach in a much freer way because you've got that constant reassurance and that reinforcement that actually someone's going to give you feedback on that and let you know how it could change or adapt. Um, and that was that's really interesting to know that that's it. It's a really nice way of looking at the idea of observation. Yeah, I mean, in first year, I I hated observations, absolutely hated them, um, and it was because I was thinking deeper into it, and it was because I wasn't being reflective enough. I'd always focus on the negatives, and I think that was the positive of being a nursery nurse for a year, was that you, know, you can get that constant feedback. It's, there's no harm in asking for constant feedback. And if you're if you're a level three listening to this, if you're like a, in a degree at the moment, I've always thought that observations were the best way forward. You're always going to get feedback. At the end of the day, you're always going to get a bad lesson. I mean, I had a math lesson. It went really bad. <laughs> and I came home and I felt absolutely rubbish. But then reflecting on that experience, the next day was one of the best maths lessons I ever taught. And I think having that experience of thinking two ways, being a reflective practitioner, and it happens all the time. I mean, I've been in lessons where I've gone, right, okay, that hasn't worked, okay, let's pause that, let's bring it back in, and do this completely differently. And, um, yeah, it's. I think it's something as a skill people should be proud of, and they're not. 
I mean, observations, formal observations, they can be scary. And I must admit, I still get a bit scared up to this day. Um, but it's, again, it's just being that reflective practitioner, making sure that, okay, so I've done some really good things today. I've done this, this, that, and the other. Okay, so what have I? What can I improve on? And again, we, we all focus on negatives. Like, oh my goodness, I didn't do that assessment in, or I didn't put that starter activity. The children didn't understand it. Well, actually, the children, some of the children did understand it, and they showed you really good understanding. They showed you that um, they've kind of mastered the skill. And actually, you focused on a lot of behaviour management today, and you've been doing some non-verbal communication whilst teaching, and that's good. Reflecting is always good. And I'm pretty sure you know that, Dawn, from hearing from other practitioners, that reflection is good. That's true. And actually, it's not just, I mean, I know that reflective practice is something that we see most prominently in those people facing roles, because obviously teachers, social workers, nursery workers, you have to do that constant reflection, that reflective practice to make sure that you're not causing any harm or that, you know, that that, that you are doing the right thing for all of those children. But reflection is important for everyone. I think it's how we figure out where best to spend our time it's how we figure out how to change the way that we react to things or sort of why people react the way they do to us you know in terms of the way that we might be able to change our communication style or talk to people in a different way obviously we've talked a little bit about reflection and we've talked a little bit about creativity and there was great things to talk about but one of the things that you mentioned at the beginning is that some of your internet presence is around that campaign to, to get more men to, to follow men to follow careers in education and especially early years education which is where you started out um has the way you look at that changed now that you've moved from early years education into primary oh that's a good question um i suppose it's really changed my viewpoint in terms of uh no it's just, it sounds like early years is a small thing but it's not it's much wider it's much a wider border issue and um, that it's faced and it's not just nationally it's internationally as well um and i've been doing uh there was two graphs that i've done about uh, international uh, early years practitioners um, and to see the impact from 2016 to 2018 is a massive difference. Um, some of it's positive, some of it's negative and uh, in terms of primary education it's the same too. I mean uh, only I think it's now it's like 13% of the workforce are men. Um, I think it's even lower now for early years practitioners. Um, but it's definitely changed my perception in the way of social justice, in terms of inclusion, um, in terms of how we rethink how we present ourselves in a way. So I know Juno Sullivan was talking about effective leadership and how we can basically question ourselves in terms of the gender balance workforce. And those questions really set from the get-go, really. And I think once you kind of look at that, you go, oh, wow, I've only got one male in my provision of 
with so many females. And I must admit, females do a fantastic job. A fantastic job. I think the one thing that did catch my eye um, was not only just the male practitioners, um, possibly like non-binary as well. Somebody did bring it up and I was like, oh my gosh, I never really thought of that. And do you think like things that, that, that there's other things as well? Like, because you're talking about um, obviously gender and there being a, a male female balance, but obviously also you're talking about the introduction of of people who might be non-binary and getting you know children to to understand the sort of I suppose the spectrum of gender and and all of the different stuff that comes with that. Do you think that in future there's a world where we just see more diversity in general in that early years setting and we do see disabled practitioners and we do see people with different barriers so that children see a range of people and get a range of experiences as to what people are dealing with. I think it will come to a day where we will have uh, equalised gender workforce or disability. I mean... It, again, it's just how we kind of arrange our practice in a way to support um, our, our, our workers and even our children. I mean, I've got a mild hearing impairment and my work knew about that and they worked around it and um, it's just trying to support the children. And the children understood as well. And I think if the children understand most, then you'll be able to change the work if the children understood that, okay, well, if, for example, I, I'm a police, if that person's going to be a policewoman, I'm going to be a policeman or a doctor or whatever. And I think children can change the world in so many different ways. And if it means that we're going to have an equalised workforce that provides equal opportunities for all that we've always done throughout our careers and throughout our lives in just pouring the hearts of children's lives and supporting them to become like 21st century citizens. Have you seen the barriers change? So I know it's been like a year and a half, sort of nearly two years since we spoke for the last podcast. And obviously we talked a bit about what barriers there were for men in early years and some of the judgment that maybe comes with that either from society in general or even within sort of workplaces and um, some of the challenges that were talked about around you know some nurseries don't let men change nappies um, and all of that weirdness that were talked about in the last one have you seen a change since the last time we spoke in the way that it works for men in childcare? Yes definitely I think being in the assessing as well for a year and I've definitely seen from when I was doing my training to when I was actually working they've actually been that dramatic shift in supporting males in early years and like having an equalized workforce and those barriers are being taken some of them are being taken away and I think the power is on Twitter of social media I mean uh, obviously we've got the EY tag team and I know that a lot of practitioners are, are supporting that. Um, I know uh, Twitter accounts are just men in the early years and men teach primary. They're trying to basically squash those um, those barriers to stereotypes. And I think when I did an interview in The Guardian, when I was trying to like, encourage more early years practitioners, uh, more educators, 
I must admit the comments were full of abuse in terms of being a male teacher. And, and the things that came up were, oh, you're part of the LGBTQ plus community. You're part of um, the, like, men can't teach because they'll just they'll just swim in water. They, they won't cope. Um, it's more of a safeguarding problem. And those are going to be squashed. And it's, I've definitely seen a dramatic shift. And I think some of the things I've seen on social media in terms of breaking those barriers have been really heartwarming. And there will be a day, again, that it will happen. And it's, it's incredible to actually see that social media can make a positive change. I'm so sorry that you saw all of that abuse in the Guardian article. Um, it, it's horrifying to me that there's still that opinion that that men are more of a safeguarding risk, or that because yeah, part of the LGBTQ plus community that that has any bearing on your ability to teach or to engage with children, or that that there's there's any sort of added risk there. That makes me feel a little bit sick. Yeah, the fact that I wasn't even part of the LGBTQ plus community then, it was kind of like, you're giving me a perception here. Um, and it, it wasn't nice. And the fact that it was based on, it, it was produced in like East London, and it was like, oh, you're not going to cope in East London, it's all full of like, crime. And I was like, what a load of rubbish. <laughs> because... If we can educate children to be, again, like effective citizens and say, well, actually, we can be whoever we want to be. And I've seen teachers on Twitter. um, I'm going to give an example. His name is Adam Levick. Um, If you go on Men Teach Primary YouTube, uh, he's done an interview with them. And it's it's a heartwarming, uh, not even a part, it's a video where he talks about his experiences and uh, he knew that he was different and he didn't have that role model to be brought up in a way that is acceptable and now he's making that change and it did reduce me to tears because it was such a satisfying thing to watch and the fact that he's making a positive change in fact he's breaking stereotypes i mean you get the occasional people but then again we need to educate them we, we just can't go, eh, who cares? Because as much as we would like to do that, we can't. <laughs> um, we just have to educate. And I think we're always going to have to educate people. Always, always. It's, it's, it's not going to be something that's going to go straight away of a drop of a hat. It's going to be something that's going to take a long time. I mean, this has been going for ages, absolutely ages. Um, probably 100 years or more. I don't, I don't know. But it will it will be a balanced workforce. Yeah. I'm pleased that you're starting to see a change and that you're starting to see that narrative change a little bit. Um and thank you for navigating that horribleness to, to, to make the world a better place and to it it's really nice because actually my experience of you is that actually you're just really kind um in everything that you do. Um and the idea that you also have to deal with all of this hatred. Um, when you're such a kind person 
is 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 sad but thank you for doing that so that you can make it better for other people i mean a lot of people do experience it even on twitter and i've i've, I've even experienced it like i think it was a couple of weeks back um and like on oh, like mouse can't be teachers and all that and like more tough <laughs> tough luck it's gonna happen um but it's it's something it's something that will happen it's something that someone has driven has been driven from the get-go and it's again we're going to have to change it and if they if they're not going to like it then it's their view it's their opinion and if we can't change it we can't change it but we're going to make a change we're going to be male practitioners we're going to be male teachers we're going to make the, all the positive changes that children need to hear because if children are able to be supported, if children are able to have those role models, if children are not able to be scaffolded in a way that supports them, I mean, I know I've got a lot of boys in my class, and I think they're glad that they've got a male teacher. But also, it's just that idea that those boys might want to grow up and they might want to be nurturing people, they might want to, to be a teacher, they might want to work in care, they might want to become a nurse, and actually you being there and showing them that that is okay and that is possible might be the thing that that sparks their interest and shows them the direction that they want to take and the fact is that my, i've got a hidden disability and i always wear my sunflower lanyard to show that i have got a hidden disability and it's quite funny because i've actually got a child in my class at the moment uh, he has cochlear implants and uh, is, is naturally deaf. And it's quite interesting to see that comparison. But some of the children, they, they get distracted. They want to get away from the learning. And they'll go, oh, Mr. Falkhurst, why have you got that lanyard? And we stopped the whole lesson. And we just spoke about having a disability, the invisible illness, the hidden disabilities, even the visible ones. And we explored that. And... We, spent, we acknowledged it and we moved on. It doesn't take more than a simple conversation or a simple question just to explore something like that. And something like that will change the world. That's amazing. Thank you. I love that line. Um, where can people find you if they want to, to follow more, if they want to find out more about you, if they want to, to read the stuff that you're doing or keep up with what's going on? Definitely. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, at j underscore forecast two eight, and I've started a teaching Instagram as well um, at Mr Forecast Teach. Excellent, and um, we'll link both of those things in the description if anybody wants to find them um, and isn't great at searching. You can just click the link and it'll open it for you. Um, and is there anything that you wanted to to see before we say bye? Is there anything that we haven't had a chance to cover that you want people to know? Um, I just think it's been absolutely fantastic that Cash has been able to follow me from when I started my plan education degree to now the end. Yeah, and now that you've got Cash alumni, you're stuck with her for the rest of your career. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, but to actually go from starting the the podcast or starting the interviews to now. You can definitely see the impact. I mean, if, if you go, if even people that are listening can go through my previous cash experiences and 
to look at it now is a dramatic change. Can you're so much more confident now, and and even just in the way that you talk and the way that you present what it is that you want to say, it, it is incredible watching the the progress that you've made in the year and a half since we last had a proper conversation that wasn't just 140 characters long. <laughs> um, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been really, really nice to talk to you. And thanks to you at home. Don't forget, for more great content tailored towards those working in care, health and education, it's free to join our network and you gain access to some great articles, videos and resources to support your career and some information about career development as well as our members' discount and benefit scheme. And if you'd like to feature on a future episode of PodCash, please get in touch at alumni at cash.org.uk. Until next time, take care.